Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here are your hosts, Emerson Fersh and Amy Lenoble. Welcome to another episode of Upthinking Finance. And happy near to everybody across the globe. I also want to welcome my co-host today and business partner and friend, Amy Lenoble. Hi, thank you. So we thought it would be a good way to start the year talking about what we do as financial advisors. And we've worked with a number of clients for capital investment advisors. And everybody's got different goals, whether it's putting their children through college, whether it's accumulating wealth for a particular shorter term goal, or putting money away for retirement, and then maintaining a sustainable income that outlasts them. And so To that point, we want to share a little excerpt from a book from our friends at Resolve Asset Management called Adaptive Asset Allocation. In referencing these goals, it says, unfortunately, many of these goals will go unrealized. At root, this tsunami of unrealized dreams will stem from a fundamental misunderstanding about the respective roles of risk, return, and time horizon in determining success and failure. Wealth planning is an exercise in risk management, and risks are everywhere. Yeah, that's really good. I love that excerpt because ultimately, I think where you and I see our role as advisors is in managing these risks. But what is the true risk? That's what we're going to get into in this episode. But our role is to manage risks for clients, for the investor. And the true risk really, because there's a million out there, and we'll talk about them, market risk, inflation, currency, default. But the real risk is that the investor, and more importantly, our clients, the people we have a fiduciary responsibility over, the real risk is that they don't hit their goal, that they don't hit their income goal, have enough to live on or that they outlast their money. That's the real risk. And that's the risk that we as the advisors, as business partners of capital investment advisors seek to mitigate. That's the risk. And so why are we doing this episode? I think it's important. You know, it's a new year, new perspectives, new beginnings. It's important to discuss how we see money and how we plan with money. I mean, really, you and I are just having a discussion with each other for our clients and for anyone else listening. So I guess that's perfect. And so where do we start? Well, let's look at where we've been. Clearly been around a little longer. You know, I got into this industry, as I've shared before, back in 1986, right after we had seen peak inflation in the late 70s and early 80s. And I really came in at a point where interest rates were beginning to drop. And that drop that downward trend in interest rates with an upward trend in bond prices went on for 40 years. And so through that, if there was a dominant theme, it was the role of the Fed in determining certainly U.S. monetary policy, but really as time has gone on, it affects global monetary policy. And so in an environment where rates are going down and money is credit is easily available, what happens is, is more and more money was forced into risk assets, stocks, real estate. And we've experienced that. And of course, there's been a couple of bubbles along the way, the dot-com in the late 90s, early 2000. And then of course, the financial real estate bubble back in 0809. But along the way, the trend has continued. And, And what's happened for us is that there have been developments, I guess, investment philosophies based on what should be considered as temporary conditions that are being viewed more as permanent circumstances that you build a foundation on. And quite frankly, in my time in the industry, mitigating risk was very simple. You just put more more bonds in the portfolio. (laughs) 
right? I mean, that's how you do it. And so modern portfolio theory became very mainstream, which is simply what I just said, adding non-correlated assets to a portfolio to mitigate risk, less risky assets to reduce risk, which then led to these ideas of 4% drawdown rates, where you could safely pull out about 4% a year because of, again, this idea of how to control risk, which then, of course, led to the emergence of the 60-40 portfolio, which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, which then led to a whole new market on how to evaluate performance, which was basically tied to benchmarks, which then led to star ratings of funds. The common thread in all this in my time, really, this is through at least through the the Great Recession, was this idea that it's all based on this, what had happened before, and the idea that what had happened before is going to continue. Now, I know, Amy, one of the benefits we have as partners is the fact that we come from different generations, you know, and, and Amy, you know, her experience has been a lot different than what I've seen in my life. Yeah, amen. I mean, I started in the industry in 2015 as a receptionist. Now I'm your business partner. Thank you. (laughs) Owning a financial firm, (laughs) you know, but uh, yeah, I was an adult in 2008. You know, if we want to start with the Great Recession, that's when I had just graduated from college. And, you know, you, my personal experience, you couldn't get a job. And the reason wasn't just because the recession, but it was also because that the people who had years of experience before you who were working while you were in school or a minor or whatever, they were willing to do their job for a beginner inexperience level cost. And of course, who wouldn't hire them over someone with no experience? We were just cannibalizing ourselves. A lot of my friends took jobs. I took a job as a bartender. I had no bartending experience. A lot of my friends took jobs as cashiers and all these things. And there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but it wasn't the job that we wanted to do. We wanted to do what our degree was in and move forward in those industries. But it was difficult at the time. On top of that, in 08, you had 25% unemployment rates. You had banks giving out money for mortgages due to no regulations on them to bad credit risks. And it was just creating a whole not good situation. I mean, I think in September of 08, the Dow Jones dropped over 700 points, which was the largest point drop in history until COVID. So it was just not a good time, you know. And for my generation, I always hear my friends saying the ones that stayed in the same industry since they graduated in 08, that's actually my college graduation year. Since they graduated, if they stayed in the same industry, what I always hear them say is, I see people being hired years after me starting at more than I'm making today, having like three or four more years experience with my raises in the company. I always hear that. It's kind of like 2008 never really left for my generation because of where we started. And it's just been a difficult time. I, again, my personal experience, I had to completely switch careers to get a fair income. I was trying to be a dancer and I just couldn't get ahead there. And I took a job as a receptionist and I was blessed that I liked that industry and moved on differently in a different path. But yeah, it's been very, very difficult. So you kind of had the great recession that led to, I mean, it lasted a long time. In 2015, I think unemployment was finally back down to 5% instead of 25% and all these things. But then you had COVID. (laughs) It's not funny. It's sad. You have the pandemic and 
I guess stimulus checks were a part of creating an upturn there. Then when it was actually time to go back to work without all these restrictions, because those restrictions really lasted into 2021. You know, everyone's like COVID 2020. It was really two years, at least in the United States for the state of California. You know, you two years, you could just barely eat at a restaurant. But once people are going back to work and restrictions are lifted and corporations realize they don't need so much real estate and all these things happened. 2022 wasn't necessarily the greatest year, which kind of leads us to today. No. And for our clients particularly, I think this conversation is important because it illustrates the fact that we come from different places and having a different perspective, particularly from Amy, your generation is really beneficial. So the COVID was kind of like the line of demarcation in a bunch of ways. Certainly, the problems we're seeing today are really as a result of the financial response that happened then, which, as you mentioned, was all this money getting thrown into the system to try to keep the global economy from literally collapsing. And what's ironic is the Bank of International Settlements, which is an organization made up of all the global central banks, in one of their recent annual reports, they literally admit, <laughs> I mean, you got to find it, dig through the print, but admit they had no idea that, you know, they didn't anticipate inflation being a consequence of pumping all this money in all over the world. So to that point, that leads us to really today, as you brought up. And today we're here to say, we think that there's forwards in the business. We've always been, you're not supposed to say this time it's different. We're here to say this time it's different. And it's different for a bunch of reasons. A lot of it, which we just covered, which has led us up to where we sit at the moment. But from a just a geopolitical, economic, geoeconomic standpoint, there's a few things I'll bring up. One is the economic union is starting to crumble. The two anchor countries that were really propping it up and were expected to prop it up, Germany and France, are having their own internal problems. Germany, mainly because of a lot of strategic decisions they've made that have been a mistakes, I guess is a simple way to put it, relying on energy, over-reliance on Russia for their energy supplies. The open door immigration policy, they took all these immigrants from the East, which has diluted political power and influence. So you get kind of a confluence of things going on there. And then this net zero policy slash ESG agenda, which has effectively weakened some of their stronger core industries. So Germany has economic problems. France, on the other hand, is suffering with high inflation, high interest rates and a debt to GDP ratio of that's exceeded over 333%. And the point of that is, is these countries are now having to worry about themselves in order to continue to survive. So the EU is starting to fall apart. There are coming changes to how both Japan and China run their own country, their own fiscal policy, which is going to involve controlling interest rates and controlling the value of their currencies. That's an episode, actually, we'll be discussing more. That'll be coming up in about a month with Professor Russell Napier, who's over in Scotland. And then the other one, I guess, that's worth mentioning is the BRICS, which a lot of people are familiar with. And how does that impact the dollar? That doesn't get a lot of run here in the U.S. You get mentions, but it's certainly not something you're going to see on CNBC as part of the mainstream you know, discussion of what the news was for the day. But it's significant. It's a realignment of Eastern countries that are separating themselves from the G7 nation, that are separating themselves from the reliance on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. In fact, on one of their websites, this is infobricks.org, just a real quick quote, because one of the biggest shifts just in the last couple of weeks was the inclusion of Saudi Arabia. And I'll read this quote from this article. Saudi Arabia's induction into the BRICS bloc is a game changer. Historically aligned with the United States, especially in economic and energy matters, Saudi Arabia's pivot towards BRICS signifies a critical realignment. This shift is expected to have far-reaching consequences, especially in how global financial transactions are conducted. And so for us as financial advisors to ignore these kinds of, Alex Craner calls them tectonic shifts, 
in the global economy would be irresponsible. And so that's really why we are faced looking at the future through a completely different lens. That's well said. I agree this time it's different. And some for obvious reasons with record highs. I mean, COVID, not to go back there, but no one could have predicted that dramatic market upturn at the end of 2020 following one of the most accelerated sell-offs in history. No one could predict that. And a lot of people didn't, and they sold, and they ate that loss. I have family members who did that. I mean, you just don't have a crystal ball for the future. And then the U.S. debt today, according to the U.S. debt clock, $34 trillion, most ever in history. And like you said, the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is the ratio between a country's government debt and its gross domestic product, I think in the U.S. it's 123% as of last year. That's a record high. So there's all kinds of risks that come just from that alone, from debt alone. There's a possible default risk. There's volatility risk. There's a ton of things there. And it's like, well, what does this mean for the investor? Because I hate to be doom and gloom like Emerson and I are good at picking out problems, which is a gift. But let's talk about solutions too. So risk definitions for today. You have market risk right? Stock market risk, volatility risk, the risk that all my money in the stock market will just be so volatile that the time horizon or my liquidity needs or some needs for my goals, if I'm buying a house, having a baby, saving for college or going into retirement, which is the most important one because having a baby and going into retirement, the one having a baby statistically, what that means is they have a lot more years to make up for certain losses. Unless someone's retiring, at 35. But the majority volatility risk is serious for someone in retirement, like going back to 2020. If you're 62, 66 at the beginning of 2020, and you have the loss and you sell because you're afraid, well, now you don't have the money there to benefit from the market upturn that happened, which again, no one could have predicted. But the point is market risk is real. Volatility is real. Majority, it's more real for someone older and closer to retirement. Again, with the exception of people retiring earlier in life. But if you aren't going to be working, you have a shorter time horizon. Market risk is serious. It's serious. Volatility is serious. Then you have inflation risk. Now I'm afraid of market risk. I put all my money under my mattress or in a bank. Well, then do I keep pace with inflation? No. Will my money outlive me? Will I have enough for retirement? Do I have enough for my children or whatever a client's goals will be? What's the balance? What's the answer there? Then there's default risk, like we were just kind of alluding to that the borrower won't be able to meet the obligation of the lender for various reasons. You have currency risk because of just things happening internationally, globally. There's a lot of risk. (laughs) But Going back to what I said in the intro, I think our role as advisors, the main risk is not all those risks. The main risk is that the client doesn't meet the goal that they desire, that the client's not having enough income in retirement or isn't able to have their money outlast them. And that's the risk that we seek to mitigate. I don't want to be promissory and say obliterate. We don't have a crystal ball, but that's the main risk that Emerson and I focus on for clients. So yeah, no, Ames, you bring up the key point. And so there's another risk as I was listening to you. The risk is, is we stick our head in the sands and pretend like doing the same old thing over and over again is going to work out for people. I mean, the geopolitical environment we're in now really is an every man for himself situation with these countries. Everybody's trying to figure out how to survive. That's why the EU's falling apart. 
That's why we heard something on a call, I don't know when it was a month ago, with actually Russell Napier that talked about how 60% of the Standard & Poor's Index, 60% of that capitalization is owned by foreign governments, which means you've got a whole outside self-interested group that can dictate the future of the stock market. So those are huge risks. And those are the risks we look at. So what do we do? What is our responsibility? How do we proceed? Well, one is we're not looking at the past and and assuming, like I said, that we can go forward doing the same thing. So first thing we've done is we realize, okay, what are the risks? And we're talking about retirees particularly. The biggest risk is selling into a loss. And I learned this, at least one unfortunate situation that comes to mind from 0809. And it was a person who Actually, there was a lot of decisions that led to them being in a situation where they were standing on a razor blade and as soon as the wind shifted, they were going to fall off. But when you sell into a loss, you're selling more shares to get the same amount of money to cover whatever your expenses are. But the other side of it is, is that money's not in there in the account to help the recovery. So you don't have that same amount of money that's in there that can help build you back up. That's why it's really a hole you can't climb out of. So what do we do? Well, we try to build out, we use a barbell strategy, which really allows us to keep money in a very conservative, on this side, principal protected type of positions or close to, in order to be able to always have a place we can draw on that's not subject to significant short-term losses. We, of course, don't want to abandon the long-term growth strategy, which has been stocks for most of the time. Most of the people have been investing in the last 40 years. But it's the middle part where we can get creative where we can use nuanced products, which include a lot of insurance products. Insurance companies offer, in my opinion, the most innovative options for people with buffered protections, with abilities to make money if the market were to be down a certain amount. Our trend models, the momentum model that Amy manages, the trend model, which is more of an inflation downside hedge that I manage, where we can use shorts, where we can control exposure to certain sectors. And actually, we're the only ones in the US that offers these types of portfolios. But these are ideas that position us to help clients with an uncertain future, like you said, Amy, where we can cover as many bases as we want in order to ultimately eliminate or control to the extent we can the biggest risk, which is people not hitting their goals. And that our job is to build portfolios that help prevent that risk from manifesting itself. Yeah, amen. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I like what you're saying about the barbell and kind of evening out different strategies, things that correlate differently with the market. I mean, it's wonderful to have a client meeting and be able to say, oh, if the market goes up, you've got things that can benefit from a market upturn. If the market goes down, you've got things with buffered protection or 100% protection, but that also keep pace with inflation. So we didn't put it under your bed in your closet in the box. We've got products like you were saying with insurance companies or wherever that offer buffered protection or certain protections and caps. And they're wonderful. And that's good for different people in different stages of life. And it's good overall in a portfolio to have things that can benefit from an upturn, a downturn, or a flat market. And that's especially important today because today it's different. I mean, the stock market for a period of time, it was just consistently going up. It had some downs and it was going up and up and up and up all the, you know, through the 80s, right? But then not today, no, no, that's not the reason to be prudent and strategic and have things that can benefit from all is because that's what we're seeing 2020, 2021, 2022. It's a different time. And so I know you and I love like putting together strategies in people's portfolios because it's fun to be strategic and plan and prudent for all the different possibilities. And really, that's, like I said, to avoid the main risk of a client not being able to outlive their money or not hitting their income goal. 
to avoid that to the best of our ability is to be strategic with structural diversification, with things that aren't correlated in the market so that you can benefit from whatever the market's doing because we're not mind readers and no one can predict the future. Literally no one. (laughs) So you do your best with what you know, which is that you don't know what will happen. Going back to like the real risk, I think what happens is the real risk is a client not hitting their goals. But if you don't have goals, that's difficult. That becomes kind of a performance chasing. And if we performance chase, and I don't mean we, you and I, I really mean anyone, you just can't (laughs) because you don't know. And so you kind of get in a, it's almost like a pointless habit. It's for nothing. What is it for? We don't even know. I think for our clients, when they have a goal, it's incredibly helpful. We know what we're trying to hit. We know what their desire is. And we know how to do it in a way that's comfortable to their quality of life. I think this part isn't spoken about a lot that I'd like to talk about. Your quality of life matters. Emerson and I call it a risk tolerance. And for client meetings, we'll send risk tolerance questionnaire. And basically what it does is kind of poke and prod you through various scenarios to get to where your comfortability is. But comfortability matters to me for my client. That matters. You know, if I'm trying to get you a 10 to 20% return quarterly, and you're at home having a heart attack, sitting in anxiety, not going out to dinner, not having experiences with friends and family, not going on vacations, not spending your hard-earned money, and just living on your bed like having a heart attack. Did I bring you value? Even if I hit the goal, let's say I hit it, you're up 20% three years in a row. Did I bring you value though? (laughs) If you're sitting in anxiety, watching the market do this and your money do this because I'm trying to hit a performance goal that's completely superfluous to your needs. Really, I didn't need to hit that home run. Just needed you to have something stable to hit that income goal where you could be living in peace and harmony and yes, have enough for errors, but not be not spending money at all and living in fear. Did I create value for you? I think quality of life isn't talked about. I think there is a way I mean, I would even be so bold as to say, I know there's a way to hit a, of course, it depends on if they have saved enough for retirement, we are limited to what they bring to the table. But there is a way to hit a client's income goal without having to be exposed to horrific, aggressive volatility, but also keep pace with inflation. And also they can live in peace. There is a way to do it where it doesn't need to be so aggressive and uncomfortable for them. You're right. Obviously, we know as with our firm where our sweet spot is with the type of clients we can work with. And it's generally people that have realistic goals. And you're absolutely right. This whole industry, without going off on a tangent, because anybody who knows me knows that that's something I'm really pretty good at, but it is predicated on a certain set of benchmarks and which is how people are bonus in management firms typically. And so the whole structure is set up based on exposure to certain things. Russell Napier actually in his book, The Asian Financial Crisis, talked about benchmarking and how in emerging market funds in the 90s, they were dominated by certain countries because other ones were so small. And so it was very difficult to get investors to go into certain places because these countries weren't part of a main of a primary benchmark. So the tentacles of this whole line of thinking go pretty deep. You brought up just a couple of things real quick, and then I'll turn it over to you for kind of final thoughts. For me, again, we've got to go forward looking at things differently. I mean, 2022 was the first year since 1969 where both the stock and bond markets were down the same year. 
So that right there, if anybody's looking for evidence that relying on the same old portfolio building isn't necessarily the safe way to go, that's right in our face. And so that's the first thing. And, you know, here's the thing, too. I mean, we didn't even talk about financial media, but the short of it is it doesn't help. I mean, I got a thing on LinkedIn from Vanguard the other day, just a little ad, I guess, because of the financial thing, they know what to send you. And they're still pushing the 60-40 portfolio narrative and, of course, saying, look at what it's done over the past. Well, anybody that's been alive for the last 40 years investing, yeah, it's worked great for sure. We're just not willing to continue to expect that going forward for all the reasons we've discussed. The other thing, too, that's changed for us as a firm, and I'll say for me particularly, is where we're getting our information. I used to be a guy, I never saw the point, and this is just real honest, but I I don't think there maybe was a point to buying information, to buying research, because in a lot of ways, from a macro level, very easy to manage risk and manage money for the last 20 years. I mean, put more bonds in the portfolio, it's simple. You add more bond exposure, government bond exposure, because when stock markets drop and there's fear, money goes, flows into that part of the area and you can have some protection. But like Amy, you said, we don't look at it that as the same level of safety anymore. We see things differently. And so we spend money as a firm on research. In fact, we spend tens of thousands of dollars to get independent, non-product-oriented information, and primarily from overseas, from European analysts and people who are just able to look at things from a completely unbiased, objective, different perspective. We're here in the U.S., as we mentioned before, you know, you come from your generational viewpoint. I come from mine. We've got diversity there, which is great. But if we're to sit and rely on the stuff we get in our email inbox every day, we're woefully unprepared. And so I think that's an important point for people to realize is that as a part of this change and a part of this ability to shift and adapt to how we're doing things, certainly it involves how we build portfolios and the products that we use, but it also influenced by where we're getting our information and research. That's really good. Thank you for bringing that up. This makes me think back to when we were on a staff retreat. It was the first time all the new staff at the whole company got together and we're sitting all four of us, all four of us. <laughs> so many people <laughs> and we're sitting together at breakfast and we're just talking and all four of us contributed to what ended up being like a company mission statement just by kind of sitting, talking, being open to truth and just being open to a different perspective that's not the norm, no confirmation bias. We were just having a conversation. And I love what we came up with, that capital investment advisors will take the world as it is, and we will do what is right despite discomfort and outside opinion. We'll do what we feel is right. We'll uphold the wisdom that we have and we'll follow it because we take that seriously. We won't just follow things that everyone is doing that we're not sure, we don't know, but everyone doing it. No, we will research ourselves like you alluded to, you brought up and take that seriously and implement that. We will receive what every client brings to us with humility, joy, and responsibility. We will not lie about a client's situation. We'll just say where it is and what we can do. We see clients as an extension of ourselves and we don't deny anything about them that affects them. It's just best to be upfront in that way. I love how we came up with those principles together. I think it was, gosh, in the middle of 2023, we came up with that and it's been really good to implement that and see how people are affected. No, that's great. So hopefully 
those of you who listened today and joined us have a little better sense of where we're at. We think it's important to document where we stand and where we see our responsibility. And I think I'll say for me and then my partner here can finish off with any thoughts she's got, but we're just grateful. We're grateful for the path we're on as a firm. I'm personally expressed gratitude before for my business partner. We're thankful for the people, Carmen and Leanne, that we work with and their contributions. And we're really, really grateful for the clients we have. You know, every time we get off the meeting with somebody, it's like, gosh, they are just awesome people. So we're really fortunate. And I want to end because you brought up a point, Amy, earlier about we're good at finding problems and seeing risks. That's our job. Our job is to find every hole in the dam that maybe even it's a trickle to make sure it doesn't turn into a flood. We're both very optimistic. And I will say this for me, and then I'll end my part. And just again, thank everybody for joining us today and up thinking finance. I've been through a number of downturns and scary periods in the markets. That is one thing I do bring to the table in this partnership is that experience. And I can tell you what, I've seen people make a lot of bad decisions. You mentioned fear, just make decisions out of fear. And I know myself, 0809 was brutal. You mentioned that one month. I remember going to lunch every afternoon. It was about a week. It was either late September, right into early October, where market was down 80 or 90 points, which was a lot back in those days. And I'd be like, okay, well, compared to what's been happening, this isn't bad. I'd come back up at 1245 California time, the market closes at one, and it'd be down seven or 800 points. I mean, it was just brutal. And it just seemed like it was never going to end. And then you had bank failures on top of that. And all the, there was a lot of fear. I will tell you today, anybody who's listening, I personally, as an advisor who's been given this stewardship to impact a lot of people's lives, I don't feel any fear. I go to bed at night, I sleep really well because I feel like we're doing everything we possibly can to try to put into place measures to help our clients, as Amy said, hit the target, which is to meet their goals. And so that they can sleep at night. In fact, I'll just end on this. We had a meeting with a client yesterday. He's getting ready to retire in two weeks and we acknowledge the responsibility we have. And and I happen to mention that oftentimes for people, it's a bit of a transition going from saving and all of a sudden relying on this money that's sort of been over here this whole time. Now we're using it. And he said, no, he goes, I don't worry at all. That's your guy's job to worry about. So I embrace that because I feel like between the two of us with our brains, our experience and our different life positions, along with the people that we've surrounded ourselves by globally, we're doing everything we possibly can to try to do what's right and do our best for our clients. Definitely. I do think, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a common misconception. The people of a restorative nature are very negative because the restorative, the fixers, that's me. (laughs) I won't speak for Emerson. I'm a fixer. They see a lot of negative, but they see a lot of negative, but it's energizing and motivating. It doesn't mean they are negative. It means they see it. And I see it as a blessing and as a gift and as a help. If I don't see it, I can't fix it. I know I can't fix the market, but it's just about being, it's motivation. It's energizing to be prudent, strategic, and you can't be prudent about what you don't know. So I agree. I am optimistic as well in the long term. I'm also aware of the short term, and I think that's a good place to be. But I, too, I'm just so grateful for the partnership and our clients and our staff. I think we're in a really good position for success and true success, not success, performance chasing success, success that people can live peacefully and confidently about what they've given us to steward. Amen. Yeah. So with that, we both say thank you all for joining us today on this episode of Upthinking Finance. Thank you. Emerson Fersh and Amy Lenoble are registered representatives and securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPIC. 
The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors, LLC. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.